Welcome to the bonus material of How in God's Name Should I Vote? I'm Andrew Palmer, and in the midst of pulling together the content for the podcast, I got to speak with some really inspiring people. Mike Frost is one of those guys that folks seem to really love or really loathe. He has a habit of pushing buttons, and for that he's copped more than his fair share of criticism. He's an author, speaker and lecturer, and is likely Australia's most sought-after thinker in the area of new missional movements. In the interests of transparency, I also need to declare that I count Mike as one of my dear friends. We don't always agree, but frankly, it wouldn't be much fun if we did. Mike is really passionate about seeing followers of Jesus embrace the biblical call to be livers and lovers of the kingdom of God in all of its glorious messiness. And one of the things that sets Mike apart is his ability to scratch away at alternate points of view until he uncovers a deeper truth. In the upcoming conversation, he speaks about the idea that Christians should eschew a conservative or progressive agenda and find a third way. I reckon that would be a good thing too. Enjoy getting to know Mike Frost. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, Andrew. Good to talk to you. Good to see you again. Mike, you have been on the the Christian scene in Australia for quite a while now. You've authored many books looking at how the church engages the wider culture, where we do that well, where we do that poorly, how we might do that better, uh, including imagining some, some new ways of doing that. At times, that's got you into trouble. And yet, the role of the agitator is a necessary role in the Christian world. Not well appreciated, I bet. Could you speak into that a little? (laughs) Well, I do feel quite appreciated. So, I mean, it's true that some people will push back and some people will take things more personally than than they should. Mm. I don't ever intend them to be kind of personal slights or attacks, but I guess if people have a strong personal investment in things being the way they are, and I criticise the way things are, some people find it difficult to distinguish between discussing the way things are and themselves. But that said, for various reasons, I've just uh, been inundated recently, and I think it's the grace of God, with lots of words of affirmation and support in ways. So usually the people who are not happy are the loudest, but there's usually a whole bunch of other people who are kind of really glad to hear someone saying things that they kind of think or even kind of feel somewhere but have never articulated. And most people are generally grateful that someone's willing to to say it. It looks to me, speaking of... of Sometimes people are, you know, a little bit loud. It looks to me like there's a shift on. Thinking about the climate strike where thousands upon thousands of students around the country gathered to have their voice heard around issues of climate, uh, including lots of Christian kids. Hmm. What do you think has shifted for them to mobilise in that regard? Uh, Well, if you're going to teach about climate science in school, you can't expect kids not to want to have a response to that. (laughs) I mean, you know, when I was a kid, they were teaching us that nuclear war was imminent, that, you know, the Russians or the Chinese were coming to get us. And, you know, we had visceral reactions to that. Uh, So, I mean, I think it's uh, it's kids uh, with high levels of initiative and engagement who uh, are responding to the stuff that they're learning. They're, They're good things. They're good indications of stuff that's... That's uh, positive in our society, I think. Hmm. Elements of the church and certainly large sections of the media have critiqued that 
particular response in relation to climate action. And thinking about conservatism and Christianity in general in the Australian context, rightly or wrongly, they've been joined together as shared values. Do you think that's appropriate? Depending on what people mean by the term. I mean, if we take the term conservative, you know, literally, it's a it's a movement to conserve old or traditional or even some cases ancient uh, values and beliefs and structures and behaviours. And as Christians holding to the ancient teaching of Jesus and the values of the kingdom of God, which no doubt have impacted European society, which was then transported to this island, we would say, yeah, we are conservative in the sense that we're committed to conserving, uh, maintaining an allegiance to those ancient and beautiful truths and values. But if the opposite of conservatism is progressivism, and if progressivism is about seeing uh, the future getting better and better, more and more opportunities for more people, that there's a, there's a progress into a, uh, a more equitable, more just, more fair society. Well, how could a Christian not be committed to that? How could we say, well, we think that the values of the kingdom of God are something that once formed us, but are no longer shaping us into the future? In fact, I would have thought that we would be instinctively progressive, that we would think that the kingdom of God is unfurling, and so the values of the kingdom of God should be taking deeper and deeper, wider and wider root, and so things like justice, reconciliation, peacemaking, wholeness, healing, these things ought to be increasing inexorably, slowly, two steps forward, one step back, all that kind of stuff. But we should be progressive people. So I guess I'm inclined to say we should be freed from either conservative or progressive agendas as they are as agendas. And so that as Christian people, we are committed to conserving the ancient and working toward a better future. Well, it's not quite ancient, but it's a generation ago. 1950s and then 1960s and then 1970s, 59, 69, uh, 79, I believe, Billy Graham toured Australia. And there were thousands of people that, that, that made their commitment to Jesus there. And many still look back on those days with a deep sense of fondness, that we mattered, that the church was vibrant and vital, uh, to the point where Billy's son is in Australia, you know, he's been in Australia this year, Franklin Graham, and the model was the same. Were we better back then? Do we do we, you know, do we desire to go back to these glory days? Well, it depends on how you judge it. Were we bigger back then? Yes, church attendance in the fifties was, you know, without question higher than it is now. In fact, it started plummeting in the late sixties and uh, uh, continued in the seventies and eighties. Plattered out a little bit after that, but has continued to decline. So, if you're going to judge how Christian we are, I just did air fingers to sort of talk about that uh, in an inverted commas kind of way. If we're, if you're talking about a Christian being, you know, did more of us attend church back in the 50s? Yes. Billy Graham in 1959, you know, has the record of number of people that ever attended an outdoor event and all that kind of jazz. In the 1950s, an Australian evangelist did a nationwide crusade. He preached in town halls and uh, uh, football stadiums. He preached at the halftime of the NRL match of the day at the SCG. Uh, he preached at the, at, at lunchtime at uh, at the BHP refinery. His name was Alan Walker. He did this thing. I think he did it for like four years in the 1950s, and they estimate 
face to face, he preached to like a third of the population of this country. Now, can you imagine this happening today? Could you imagine getting a spot at you know half time at you know the city football stadium or walking into a, a big oil refinery and preaching at lunchtime? I mean, it's just inconceivable. So, yes, in the 1950s. More people attended church. Yes, ministers and, and priests were uh, valued as respectable, highly respectable members of society. Yes, so-called Christian values were affirmed. Uh, so yes, that was the kind of the heyday in that sense. And, uh, and numbers uh, have fallen ever since. But if you ask, you know, was it better in the 1950s for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders? You have to say no. They didn't even have the vote the stolen generations policies were still being enacted in the 1950s. Uh, the stolen wages policies of the Queensland government were still being enacted in the 1950s. Uh, uh, would you possibly, as a black man in this country, say, we need to get back to the 1950s? Would you, as a woman, say that, that in the, in the 1950s, when my wages are significantly less than, than an, an, a man doing the same job, where I'm expected, really, to, to, to stop work when I become a mother. Um, you know, it was a far more racist, far more sexist culture in the 1950s. And that's not to say it's not racist now and it's not sexist now, but let's ask ourselves, is the world a better place for women and uh, Indigenous Australians today? Yes, it is. Uh, is it a better place for white male clergy today? No, it isn't. Who's the one bleating about how we need to get back to the good old days? It's white male clergy. So, look, I'm sorry to white male clergy. I'm a member of the, I'm a white male who's a member of the clergy, so I'm part of the crowd. But let's ask ourselves who's calling us back? Who was benefiting from life being like that? And then ask, well, then maybe we need to hold this with a bit of grain of salt. I mean, in the 1950s, my mother, Catholic woman, thought that our local parish priest was literally like next to God. Now, that was good for white male clergy. But as we know, those kinds of beliefs were the very things that allowed white male clergy, as we've now discovered through the Royal Commission, to wreak the most unspeakable suffering. On, uh, on their victims. And so was it a good time in the 1950s to be a choir boy or to be a kid in a Catholic church, for example? No. So my point here is this. It's not like it's better now, it was be terrible then, or neither would I agree it was better than it's terrible now. It's not a straight line. Society is changing. It's getting better in some areas, worse perhaps in others. But to take this very simplistic notion that just because more people went to church then than do now, we're on the decline, I think is kind of naive in the extreme. Let's dig into this idea of a new conservative rhetoric in Australia now that is very defensive is largely around what has been lost and has become a political force in this country, ironically led by a woman. Mm. Does it surprise you that that's occurred? No, it actually doesn't surprise me because I think that there is, um, in this, I think when you live on an island, there are really deeply entrenched anxieties about outsiders. And um, I think that it's very easy to kind of tap into those. Uh, there's a there's a there's a mine there is a reservoir a lot far under the surface and so uh, people who are feeling uh, anxious about their their jobs about the agriculture sector about the manufacturing sector uh, who feel that like they're on thin ice perhaps in some way and then are 
are told that there's floods of refugees coming from here or there or floods of outsiders coming from here or there. It's not difficult to to tap into that, those kinds of anxieties. But I don't hear her talking so much, if we're talking about Pauline Hanson and One Nation, I don't he- hear her so much doing what I hear lots of Christian conservatives doing, which is talking about kind of we were more Christian back then. She might be saying we were more white back then and those those conversations might get a, a bit conflated. Um, but I'm not surprised by it. It's very easy to tap into xenophobia and racism and those kinds of anxieties in this country. There is a hijacking of the language of Christianity, though, in some of the of the hard-right rhetoric, that we were a Christian nation, we've lost our Christian values, uh, largely articulated by people who show absolutely no Christian conviction at all, mm-hmm. uh, but they tap into... Uh, a potential Christian voter base then that is confused by a desire to be compassionate and also a fear about law and order, a fear about change, a fear about um, the world looking desperately different to the world that they grew up in. Well, the world is desperately different to the world that they grew up in. I mean, that's it's definitely different to the world that I grew up in. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a world where my father used to watch the most kind of racist garbage from like you know british sitcoms and laugh his head off at 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 jokes against african people um i grew up in a time when my father was outraged at the thought that my mother would want to go back to work after we'd all started school you know i grew up in a time where you know the white australia policy had not long been officially dismantled but still carried a lot of credence in in society um it is a very different world today i mean we've got those as we began this conversation you know my grandkids if i had any you know our kids are out on the streets campaigning uh for for justice on on climate change and as christians you would think whether you call that you know combating climate change or whether you call that creation care kind of following the ancient value that we have from from our texts, you know, to conserve those beliefs about being stewards of the earth. I mean, they're tapping into things that we as Christians should celebrate and affirm in that regard. So, yeah, no, it is a desperately different time and people are struggling with that, which is why I think we need good, respected Christian voices out there saying, hold on, like, there are things we should be concerned about. It's not like utopia is coming, but let's not misdirect our anxieties to the weak, that is, to children who are campaigning or to refugees or to Aboriginals. I mean, look who are the victims of these kind, this kind of rhetoric. They're always the, the weaker, the outsider, the, 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 uh, the, the one from the margins. And so, you know, just, just observe who's doing the talking, who's benefiting from what they're saying and who's being victimised by what they're saying. I think you've articulated a much more nuanced nuanced idea of what it means to have a conservative position on some things and the our, our politics seemingly has become profoundly binary so that one is either conservative or progressive does it surprise you that that's occurred uh, I find it all the time. It's like, well, you would say that because you're on the left. It's like, no, I'm not on the left. You know, I'm not on the right. Uh, I'm not a conservative and I'm not a progressive. I say that all the time to people. But there is just this orientation to have to force you into one or the other because then we can either celebrate what you say because you're on the same side as me or we can dismiss it. And so uh, in response to that, I would say just keep 
transcending it. I think Christians in this country ought to say we're not on the left or on the right. We're not conservative or progressive. As you've just articulated really well, we're, we're both in many respects. Uh, we transcend that because we are people of the, the reign of God. The kingdom of God uh, was uh, inaugurated uh, in the incarnation, demonstrated to us by Christ, taught to us by Christ, uh, and then unleashed on the world through his death and resurrection. It's unfurling inexorably around the world and throughout history. And our allegiance is to that and to the values of that that reign of God, the reign of King Jesus. So uh, there are going to be times when the reign of King Jesus, because of its orientation to the poor, to justice, to access and equity, looks a bit leftist. But it's not on the left. It's the reign of God. There are going to be times when it looks like really traditional because it's about um, uh, protecting life in all of its forms. But it's not right wing. It's the reign of God. So likewise, when it comes to creation care, uh, I would say that uh, it's not a leftist, hippie, new agey kind of uh, Greens Party uh, agenda. Uh, we would celebrate those who would want to join us in creation care, but we're not going to be beholden to any particular partisan political uh, response to that. do you think are the most important issues and policies that Christians can consider when it comes to their voting as people of the kingdom of God who just happen to live in a secular pluralist democracy? Well, I mean, there are multiple ways in which Christians are going to respond to this. So uh, at the risk of getting people upset or offside, um, I'll come out with them one most likely to upset the most people. But uh, Christians might choose not to vote in this election. Now, you're not you're not forced to vote. You are forced to turn up and have your name marked off at a, at a roll, or to pay a fine, whichever you choose to to uh, to do. But it's not you are not required to have to vote. And I know that you know Christian people throughout history and around the world have actually chosen to opt out of the political process for the kinds of reasons that we've talked about. It's just that it's not possible for them to show their allegiance to one side or the other, or because of their ecclesiology and their particular view of the kingdom of God, they are not going to participate in in a democratic process. So that's a legitimate one. It's not one that I hold to, but some people listening to this might think, oh, is that a legitimate Christian option for how to respond in an election? Well, certainly it is. Quakers have done it, Anabaptists have done it, uh, the Brethren Church or various arms of the Brethren Church at different times have done that. So you may just choose to opt out. You're going to be a good citizen and commit yourself to serving the poor, responding to the concerns of Christ in uh, in uh, your neighbourhood uh, and across the city, um, but you're not going to vote. So let's put that on the table. The other option is that uh, you don't belong to any particular party, but you're going to examine in uh, in great detail the policies of uh, of your particular candidates and then decide. I'd say that Christians ought, in that respect, to be freed from the idea that they'll they're likely to find a candidate that will satisfy them at every level. And so at some degree, they're going to have to hold their nose while they vote. So, you know, I'm going to find a candidate that, you know, 60% of what they stand for is uh, is I can agree with, but that's better than the other candidates, then I'll vote for that person. A vote for that person is not an endorsement of everything that they hold or everything that their party necessarily holds. 
Uh, and so your your question is what things ought to be most important uh, forefront of our thinking, protection of life, uh, protection of planet. Uh, I think that um, uh, uh, justice or equity, access for all. Uh, I think that uh, being a good neighbour uh, in terms of uh, our response to refugees, but also to foreign aid. Uh, I think that we should be thinking about what party is likely to be best for those who are at the uh, weak, at the margins, who are hungry, who are outsiders, uh, rather than just asking what's best for the church or what's best for, you know, my house prices. Not voting, Mike, is a radical idea that I think has been trumped in a genius way by the advent of the democracy sausage, <laughs> which gets people out of their beds in droves. Should people vote local? Should they just vote on local issues? No, I don't think that they should just vote on local issues, actually. No, I think that um, I think that we ought to be um, thinking as a nation about what's best uh, for, as I said, the poor, the marginalised, the, the immigrant, the refugee, uh, what's best for uh, Indigenous Australians, um, what's best for the poorest uh, in the world. I mean, I think that we should take seriously uh, our extraordinary, extraordinary blessing that's come to um, uh, European immigrants in this country, to Australian society. We are extraordinarily blessed, extraordinarily wealthy. Uh, I know people listening to this will say, oh, I don't feel very wealthy. And in saying that, I'm not saying every single person is. And I understand there's great inequity. But um, I think as Christians, if we're saying Christian values have helped shape this country, as lots of uh, people are, are want to do, well then, great. If What would a Christian nation, if there could be such a thing, do? It would throw its arms open to those who are most needy. So no, I think that those kinds of things, um, foreign aid, concern about uh, reconciliation, immigration policies, um, concern about access and equity for all, those things are essential and they're not just local. I'm going to come back to the issue of asylum seekers in a moment. But you, you mentioned two particular issues, sanctity of life and care of the planet. Historically, seen sanctity of life seen as a, a conservative issue and care of the planet historically seen uh, as an agenda of the Greens or on the left of politics. Uh, that seems to me a classic example of what it means to live on both sides of, of that divide. Uh, nonetheless... For the Christian community in Australia, the sanctity of life and the laws around abortion are, are hot markers for them. How do we speak into that intelligently, holistically, um, in ways that uh, will uh, benefit our society at large? Well, intelligently and holistically is how we should do it. So, I mean, I think that Christian people... Uh, should have as a primary agenda that we're wanting to see um, downward pressure on the number of abortions in this country. I mean, uh, uh, just as we would want to see downward pressure on the number of deaths by suicide and downward pressure on the number of deaths by domestic violence and uh, downward pressure on the number of, of deaths uh, by 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 uh, uh, dying in a in a uh, immigration detention centre. I mean, life is life, and we believe that our commitment is to conserve life. So it's, I think where it becomes unintelligent and non-holistic, whatever that word is, 
is where we think, oh, we'll just ban this. So we'll just ban abortions or we're just going to ban, you know, uh, uh, suicide if that was possible. Uh, And we know it's ridiculous and we know it's impossible. But by the same token, I think that we need to be looking at all policies to ask ourselves, do they contribute to the protection to the greater protection of life without expecting that any government can uh, can completely uh, end uh, a death uh, it's it's foolish to think that um, back in the day when abortion was illegal uh, there were no abortions now in some parts of Australia it's it's legal and there's of course uh, the ALP has a policy to, to make it legal in every state. Uh, there will be uh, more abortions now. But we have no clue how many backyard abortions and bodgy jobs and, and unspeakable suffering that uh, women went through in the 1950s. Uh, uh, we also know that, uh, that the approach of taking single mothers to other towns to have babies and wrenching their, their, their kids away from them and adopting them out was heinous and has caused unspeakable suffering. So I go back to that idea. It wasn't all good back in the 50s because certain laws were in place and it's all bad now because other laws are in place. It's a much more complicated story than that. And so, yeah, look in detail at the policies that uh, various parties have. And, you know, you may have to hold your nose uh, knowing that none of those policies are perfect in the way that we Christians would like to see them. But we're looking for... Uh, ways in which um, life might be protected. You wrote a blog recently on how we were to engage pro-life, pro-peace, pro-planet, pro-religious freedom, pro-refugee, pro-Aboriginal reconciliation and pro-poor in the way that we engage politics. I wanted to take this um, a step sideways and ask how do we engage with our political leaders who claim personal Christian faith when they develop and defend policies that are entirely at odds with Christian thought, and particularly, to put this one on the table, uh, our policies around asylum seekers and indefinite mandatory detention are case studies in human abuse. How do we, as a Christian community, engage politics in that regard? That seems a no-win situation. Uh, You mean politicians claiming to be Christian? Ah, I think we we rebuke them as we would any brother or sister that we think that is uh, um, uh, sinning or lying or you know uh, committing untruth in some way. Yeah, I think that uh, I, I happen to have a local member who happens to be a Christian, uh, who happens to have enacted some of these policies, and so uh, uh, I uh, and I have made a deputation to to that uh, local member. On occasion, so I, yeah, I think we just speak truth as we understand it, and uh, um, I would much prefer a politician, a Christian politician, who's able to say, "Well, I'm a member of a party. I uh, democratic processes are at work. I don't like this policy, but I have to defend it because I'm a member of the caucus or a member of the party." Um, I'd prefer that level of honesty than the the kind of uh, slavish allegiance to to party dogma uh, as though it were were wholly writ in some way. You have personally engaged in in what might be termed civil disobedience. Um, Can you tell us why you chose to engage that? You've written about it, so you're on the record. Your position's well known, and yet you chose to to act in a way that gained media attention? Was it simply about media? Well, (laughs) 
Yes, it is. Civil disobedience is about media attention. It's about doing something that gets uh, media attention so that people become more aware of the issue. So in short, yes. Um, why did I do it? Uh, well, it depends on which instance we're talking about. But on one occasion, it was as a result of reading the Nauru papers and just hearing for the first time the unspeakable suffering that was going on on that island. Uh, it was a, I, had a, I had a visceral reaction to it. It's my my taxes are being paid to fund this torture. So uh, I was infuriated and thought, well, how on earth can we make a difference? And at some point, you know, you've been in enough marches and you've visited your local member enough and you've put up posters or placards or made Facebook posts or whatever enough, you think, well, what's the next iteration of this? Um, you know, for the kids... At the climate strike, it's, well, let's march in the streets. But uh, if things don't change, well, what's next? What's next? What's next? There's always going to be something else uh, unless some kind of change occurs. And, you know, praise God, those kids are now off Nauru. I mean, there are still people in offshore detention, but thank God that the kids have been released from Nauru. But, uh, you know, civil disobedience is exactly that. It's about trying to gain attention. And when I was chained to the gates of Kirribilli House uh, next to a guy called uh, Jared McKenna um, after the last time I'd been arrested at the Prime Minister's office not achieving anything, I said to him, it was, it was a baking hot day and I'm chained by my throat to a gate and there's police and media everywhere. And I said, what difference does this make anyway, Jared? And he grabbed his phone and passed it over to me and he said, here's a, a tweet from some guys on Manus right now. And the tweet was, you know, it doesn't matter what this achieves, guys, just knowing that you are with us just means the world to us. And I thought, well, if that's all this does, if it just gives some courage and some strength to some people who are, like, suffering really unspeakable hopelessness, okay, I can, I can chain myself to a gate for an afternoon. And I, I wish more Christians would, frankly. Is there a line that we can't cross as Christians in terms of civil disobedience? Well, I think a better term for civil disobedience is non-violent direct action. So the direct action part is you put yourself in a place where authorities want you not to be. So I was in the Prime Minister's office. They didn't want me to be there. It was a direct action to sit in there. It was a direct action to get chained to the gates of Kirribilli House. So you're, uh, uh, Martin Luther King marched on the streets, uh, rode buses when the, they were segregated, sat at uh, uh, lunch counters where they were segregated. So that was the direct action. It's against the law for me as a black man to have lunch at this counter. I'm going to sit at the counter anyway. Uh, it's against the law for me to be chained to a gate. It's a gate that the Prime Minister might want to drive in and out of. So it happens the Prime Minister didn't live in that house, currently still doesn't live in that house. But anyway, I am actually uh, you know, impeding access to the house. So that's the direct action part of it. The non-violent part is really important. So you know, we don't commit vandalism. We don't attack people. We're not violent. It's a non-violent direct action. So sitting at a lunch counter, uh, doing a sit-in somewhere, marching in the street without a permit, as the case would be with Martin Luther King and uh, the civil rights movement. Uh, they are absolutely passive forms of resistance. So when the police come and ask us to move, we say that we won't move. That's the, the passive part of it. Um, but when we're arrested, uh, we, we, uh, we assent, we, we, uh, we go with them. So 
so no, I wouldn't be going around smashing windows or rioting or hurting people or breaking laws of that kind. But nonviolent direct action in order to bring attention to a particular issue is actually an ancient Christian tradition. It doesn't go back as far as uh, Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. It goes right back to um, Christian activism uh, uh, before the Russian Revolution. Uh, you find nonviolent direct action uh, by the Dutch uh, during the, the, the rise of the Nazis. Uh, you find it uh, with Gandhi's work in South Africa and also in India. So yeah, I think it's a it's a it's a, an old and traditional way of responding to a government that doesn't appear to be listening to us, either at the polling booth or through more traditional forms of uh, of protest. Mike Frost, author, lecturer, missiologist, activist, agitator. It's been great to speak with you today. If you've enjoyed How in God's Name Should I Vote, you might like to rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Andrew Palmer. Thanks to our producers, Katrina Rowe and Liam Denny, and our online content manager, Andrew Morris. Production by Richard Hamwee.